This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Tomorrow, City Council, uh, during the planning meeting anyway, is going to deal with what has become a very contentious issue here, and that, of course, is uh, medical marijuana greenhouses, uh, pot greenhouses. We know that uh, the legality of uh, marijuana, both federally and provincially, is imminent. Uh, The feds seem to be dragging their heels through the Senate on this, but it will happen eventually. And these antis- these companies are in anticipation of this are buying huge tracts of land. I've seen this happen in other communities, and wanting huge tracts of land. But this, first of all, it contravenes the existing city bylaw, which which gave some pretty strict parameters about this. Then we need to ra- worry about the ramifications of something like this. Uh, one of the voices that is raising those concerns is Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Lloyd, thanks for jumping in again. I really appreciate the time today. You're welcome, Milton. Thanks for having me on. Well, I know you had some concerns about this when this came before planning a little while ago, and and, uh, and and you raised, I think, some legitimate concerns. And maybe the one that we should maybe start with this time around is what seems to be a change in attitude from city staff on this. As I mentioned in my opening comments, uh, there was already discussion about this. Some parameters were set. Now it seems as if the city is simply saying, no, you know, all bets are off. Guys, whatever you want, you're going to get. Well, yeah, that was it, um, our road official plan, which was approved in 2014, uh, talked about the growing of medical marijuana and restricted the size to 2,000 square meters because uh, it was about the preservation of uh, prime agricultural land for the growing of food. And that's been forced uh, uh, since then, and is still in force right now, <laughs> unless council and its wisdom decides to change that. And uh, two weeks ago at the planning meeting, there was an application by the Organic Green Dutchman at the location we've talked about at our last time I was on your show, at the corner of Alberton and Jerseyville Road. And there they proposed two buildings, one being 2,000 square meters, one being 13,000 for a total of 15,000. Then uh, the report came out over the weekend about uh, uh, the public meeting, the background for the public meeting that's going to be held tomorrow on this matter. And staff are suggesting we should take the restriction to 90,000 square meters. So I don't get it either. I don't get it how we already approved to. I don't get it. Last or two weeks ago, last meeting, they said, well, we'll allow 15. And now they're saying they'll allow 90,000 square meters. I mean, uh, in November 8, 2017, which is only six months ago, we passed a resolution, council passed a resolution that stated where is the city vision for the rural areas of vibrant rural economy for focusing on food production and sustainable stewardship of the land base, water resources, and compatibility, and where the city encourages marijuana cannabis producers to reuse existing buildings with the urban area, and where the city has put in place official plan policies and zoning regulations to allow limited small-scale production in rural areas. So, you know, that is not that old, and that's council direction. Uh, very clear resolution, and now they've come back with 90,000 square meters. So as Ricky said to Lucy, they've got some explaining to do tomorrow. Well, this is the thing that, that I can't seem to get my head around, and I think a lot of people in the community are like this, because you've talked about this in the past. I talked to Mayor Eisenberger about this when you were developing that policy, and he said, look, we can't turn our backs on this, and, and I think he's right. It's an industry, and we have to be forward-thinking about that. Whether you like the stuff or not is actually inconsequential. It's, it's something that's happening. But you designed a plan. And, and uh, people I talked to on council said, yeah, you know, we're going to use some of these old brownfield sites, some of these old buildings, and, and that will be the location. It'll be great for that. It'll help the local economy, et cetera. And it seems as if the people that are in this industry simply said, no, nah, we don't want to do that. And your city staff said, okay, fine, go where you want. 
Well, I'll tell you that, that these are venture capitalists, very well funded, very good businessmen that are trying to get the, try and take advantage of an emerging market. And typically, you see these type of individuals are they they're lawyered up and they're top planners, and uh, they want to get these places developed. Then they flip them out afterwards to somebody else once they get up and running, and and leave the problems behind for us to deal with. But you know, we talked before about Albert and the Jerseyville Road. That's these are rural roads, surface treated roads, farm equipment going up and down them all the time. Uh, limit very limited of any shoulders there. So if there's someone gets in trouble, there's no place to escape to. And uh, the Green Organic Dutchman, which is proposing 15,000 square meters, this is 90, which is six times more, um, they said they'll have 75 employees. Well, they're all going to demand public transit. And, uh, you know, the right place for them to go, in my view, is over to our green fields, or our brown fields. Our brown fields, according to a report we received last week, showed that uh, there's some 80 hectares of brown fields still available. Now, it's down to half of what it was a few years ago. But there's still 80,000 square meters. These marijuana, um, medical marijuana grow operations, and, and in the future, the recreational, consume a lot of water and a lot of power because they, they force grow them under bright light, uh, artificial light. Well, they require the power, and, and even the Green Organic Dutchman uh, said at their meeting two weeks ago that there's not enough power in the rural area, so they will put a, a big generator in. Well, now you need to haul fuel to that generator. And and uh, you don't got to have the noise of an engine running 24/7 uh, in our rural areas when it's not necessary. And what are they going to do for water? They say they're going to catch the water. Well, off the roofs. Uh, that's great. <laughs> I know in Alberton because I live in that area. We haven't had a drop of rain in, in almost a month. And what happens when these droughts hit? And, and so they're going to start drilling uh, wells, or suck the wells dry from all the neighboring farms, or they're going to start trucking it in. Much again, once again, our rural roads can't take that uh, that beating that will happen when you start trucking in uh, loads and loads of water. But I think what's triggered it for staff is two things. Number one, the Federation of Agriculture has determined that the growing of cannabis is a crop, and I don't think anybody can deny that. If uh, you have some earth and you put a seed in it and you water and it grows, I, I guess you could argue that's a crop. But uh, the city has the responsibility for and the authority to control land use. And so if we're going to, it's going to crop and they're going to grow it, then grow it in a maximum 2,000 square meter facility, which we've already approved in our official plan. And, and uh, so why are we shifting off of that? Why, why, you know, there's a very successful medical marijuana facility uh, already going in the Ancaster Industrial Park. Tons of water available to them, all the hydro they need. And, and not imposing on taking agricultural land, the food of land, out of production, farm production. And, and you know, uh, I, I did Google um, a narcotic on the weekend, and it says a drug or other substance affecting mood or behavior. So we're going to stop growing food to start growing a narcotic? Well, let me ask you about that, Lloyd, because you, you mentioned planning, and that's why this is before the planning committee. And and I don't want to get too prescriptive here, and, and you know, there's too much inside baseball stuff. But as you mentioned, there are zoning uh, regulations in every city, in every community, that this is where you can build houses, this is where you can farm, this is where you can have industry, etc. I think people know that by now. But within those broader topics are subsections. In other words, that's going to be a residential area, but this is where you can build single family, this is where you can build apartments. In other words, it does get pretty prescriptive. Why aren't we doing the same thing with agriculture? And simply saying you can grow crops, any crop you want, 
simply say this is going to be stuff that's going to be food for the community. This is going to be a cash crop because there is a difference. Well, yeah. Well, there's there's lots of cash crops that can end up as food because you grow hay to put through cattle. Sure, I get that. And uh, you know, you grow soybeans. But hay's not going to feed me when I want to go from a restaurant that's going to serve earth to table, or when I want to go to my grocery store and get vegetables and fruit. I can get that locally now. But if 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 a lot of that very usable, uh, uh, you know, agricultural land is all of a sudden going to be transferred over to growing pot because it's going to make more money, where am I going to get my food? Where's everybody in this community going to get their food? And, and, you know, we've restricted, we, we stopped about 30 years ago allowing rural severances for farmers who want to retire. So they, they no longer could carve off a 100 by 50 foot lot in order to build a retirement home so their son or daughter could take over the farm or they sell it. Yeah, and that because was wrongheaded, but that's another topic. Well, they, but that was all to preserve prime agricultural land. Yeah. That was the motivation for doing that. Now we're going to put up something the size of Lime Ridge Mall. And this is a, a million square feet per farm that would be permitted if this recommendation is accepted. And I just don't get it. I don't get it. And where are they going to find the water for all that and hydro and, and uh, you know, the damage to railroads? I'm repeating myself now. But yeah, but I want to ask you something. You, you, you're a farming family. I mean, the Fergusons have been farming, I think, going back to the days of the United Empire Loyalists. I mean, you guys know the land, okay, especially in that area. How much of a temptation is it going to be for anybody? And, I, and you and I both know a number of people who had farming families for many, many generations. How tempting is it going to be for them to say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of this. I'm just going to get uh, the, the marijuana guys can have this. I get my money and I'm out of here. Well, that's the reason I believe, and I, I can't say that factually, but I believe that's why the Agricultural and Rural Affairs Committee was divided. The same as the rural community was divided on the green belt. And some of them wanted to cash out and some of them wanted to continue to farm and, and maintain the price of uh, farmland at a reasonable price. And and so the another reason that the staff are coming on side, they're saying that the Agricultural and Rural Affairs Committee uh, asked to have the restriction of 2,000 square meters removed. But that was a very close vote. And it was sitting in the room, it was very divided. Now, one thing staff are recommending was this, this uh, suggestion they're taking this to tomorrow. We're not going to, as, and they're not looking for approval tomorrow. They're looking to receive delegations, and I encourage anyone who has a position on this to attend tomorrow. The meeting starts at 9.30, but there is four other rezonings up ahead of it. So it won't start right at 9.30, but don't be late because you don't want to miss it. So maybe 10.30, you need to be in the council chamber just to be safe. But they're looking for the input from the public tomorrow and, and have a discussion on the committee. And then they want to go back out to the Agricultural and Rural Affairs Advisory Committee and get their comments on this report. And so it's not finished yet. The public can still engage on it if they so if they so choose. But I just don't understand how we go from two to fifteen to ninety thousand square meters or a million square feet. Because if you start putting a million square feet on twenty or thirty farms in the rural area in Ancaster and Flamborough or Glenbrook, that's going to change the landscape and it'll never go back in agricultural land again because there's there's going to be concrete foundations and floors in these buildings. There's going to be parking lots to park the employees and it'll be lost forever. And, and again I want to be clear on this. I'm I'm just getting from what you're saying that that you're not opposed to this. You you're not opposed to pot farms moving in here. You're not opposed to this growth, this this economic development and that's what it is. I understand that. It's it's a matter of the city having the backbone to say yes, you can do that, but you're going to do it over here. 
uh, because yeah, that's doing, what we've owned. You know, the brownfields are cheap land because they're sitting idle now. But you and, know their argument, and, and you're going to get this tomorrow, Lloyd, is they're saying, well, you know, Hamilton's air is so dirty, we can't grow stuff down there. And that's a bunch of that's a bunch of baloney. The uh, our staff responded to that uh, when they made that allegation that the air is not clean enough. They said that the minister, uh, the Health Canada, who regulates this, does not control the air outside the building. They control the air that leaves the building, and so that was a very misleading statement made by the proponents of this. What they want is cheap farmland to build this. That's their motivation. To not pay, you know, uh, even. Brownfield lands, uh, the cost is significantly less than farmland. So this is all about money. It always has been and always will be. And uh, it's not trying to argue the crop thing, although that plays to their advantage. Uh, and, and so this is the part that frustrates. We're going to take the production of food, switch it to growing a narcotic for the sake of some venture capitalists making money. I don't think so. Interesting to know, too, for those who say, well, the air quality is too rotten down there by the water to do this. Uh, anybody visited the RBG in the last little while, which is right by two major highways and, and within striking distance of those great big factories that they're talking about, uh, and they seem to make it work. I see things growing there all the time. And I'm not suggesting it's it's clear and pure air, but I'm just saying this this argument that it's not going to work, I think, is, is really, again, I think it's overblowing it just to try to make their point. Well, it's wrong. It's, it's just factually wrong. And 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 uh, because it's, it's about the quality of the air they put out, because there can be odors when you grow marijuana, and so they're saying you got to scrub that air before you release it. That's what Health Canada's position is on it. And if it's good enough for all the people who live in the in the areas where these brownfields are, surely it's good enough to grow marijuana. And and uh, you know, I, all you got to do is check our records over the last ten years. Our, qu- our quality, air quality in Hamilton has never been better, and uh, and it's improving every year. And so um, I just don't take that argument either. And I'll tend to ask those questions publicly tomorrow. Lloyd, thanks as always for the time. It's going to be interesting to see how this rolls out tomorrow, but uh, certainly we'll be talking with us again. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Bill. Lancaster Councilor Lloyd Ferguson. You got a problem about this? Got some concerns? Talk to your city councilor. The ball's in their court. They're the ones that are going to have to make a decision about this. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Anybody who has uh, seen the pictures of uh, migrant children have being ripped from their parents' arms over the last couple of weeks must be touched. I hope they are touched by this. And uh, some of the stories are just, well, earth-shattering, really. Over the last six-week period, nearly 2,000 minors have been separated from their families at the U.S. border. This is due to a crackdown on illegal entries, according to the Department of Homeland Security. Donald Trump and his administration have said it's the Democrats' fault. Uh, They're the ones that put this law in place. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has cited the Bible to defend his policy, and on and on it goes. Uh, it's, It's ridiculous, actually, to see some of the justifications that have come out of the White House on this. What is going to happen? Where is this going to lead? Barry Kay joins us, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, majoring in Canadian and U.S. politics. Barry, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on this today. Good morning, Bill. I, I, I know we said this in the past, but it just boggles the imagination to the extent to which the Trump administration will go here to, to policies that, that, you know what, we would have condemned in a heartbeat if we'd ha- known this to be happening in any other country in the world. Well, it is being condemned. I mean, you mentioned a couple of the people with different positions, but there's even more than that. Uh, Nielsen, the uh, the Homeland Security uh, Secretary, basically denies there's a policy at all. 
Um, the uh, what was his name Miller Stephen Miller in fact uh, suggests it's a great idea and that it's what it's really about is trying to get bargaining leverage for the wall. Uh, but look, this is really Trump style on so many things. I know you want to talk about this issue and we will, but uh, the, basically the same thing's going on with the tariffs too. The tariffs on Canada and China and everybody else now is really just bargaining leverage to get trade benefits for him. He threatens X, Y, and Z in order to, uh, to hope that the other, other side will fold. With regard to this particular issue, he hoped and expected that, in fact, his ability to embarrass the Congress into doing something about an, uh, an abominable situation would cause them to come to the table and agree to, um, uh, to, to fund the wall, which hasn't been funded. He had tried that with DACA. That was the, um, you know, the issue with mm-hmm. regard to the, um, the, the, the children that were brought to America in years gone by and have lived there for years. Unfortunately for Trump, the courts basically stopped it. They, 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 uh, they denied the ability to, at least in the short term, this may yet change in the future. But time after time, he's doing all sorts of abominable things to try to bring opponents to the table in order to leverage them to give him what he wants, in this case, money for his wall. But it, it, there's a pattern here, as you've talked about, Barry. This is this is not just about fairness. This is about dominance. Uh, this is what Trump's all about with NAFTA deals, with the uh, tariffs, with this. He he wants to dominate. He wants to win. He wants to crush absolutely anybody. It's it's, it's everything it's, is zero sum. Yeah, if the other guy loses, he wins. It seems. In fact, with regard to trade, of course, uh, Canada would certainly be hurt and probably is already being hurt, although it's going to get worse with regard to the tariffs. But Americans are being hurt, too. Uh, Trade wars don't help anybody. In this case, he's also being hurt because of the bad publicity. Now, his wife is suggesting it's bad. Laura Bush is suggesting it's bad. I don't think, frankly, on this one he can sustain it for very long because Republicans are starting to break at least a little bit with regard to support. Republicans are clearly afraid of him. Democrats just automatically line up against him. Um, he, you know, he's, he, he just loves to pick fights. I don't know if you want to go into it. I remember seeing a, um, a biography of Trump just before the election was on CNN talking about his, uh, his, his lifeline and suggesting that back at the age of 10, he would always be starting food fights at birthday parties, throwing cake at each other. And here he is 60 years later doing the same damn thing in every other way. He just loves to fight. He picks fights with everybody, thinking that that's going to give him leverage and power. And certainly America is stronger economically and militarily than anyone else. But you've still got this kind of retarded personality who is still acting like a ten-year-old. The the frightening thing about this, though, is the base still loves this. And maybe Barry, we should have seen this coming. You know, when he even started talking about building the wall, and he talked about the the pestilence that was the immigrants that were coming across the border and stealing jobs and raping their women, and they they didn't they weren't they weren't shocked by that. They they embraced it. We were, uh, look, I, the very first of the outrages, actually the very first was the comment about the rapists coming from Mexico, but shortly thereafter he talked about the fact that uh, John McCain wasn't really a, uh, a hero because he got caught and got in prison for five years. And again, we've just been surprised at every turn. Uh, that said, you know, his base is there and his base has been loyal, surprisingly to me, but his base does not constitute half the population. I'm, what I'm hoping for and frankly expecting, we'll see to what degree, is that in fact the Republicans are going to face reversals come the, uh, the midterm elections in November. Now that's still another goodness five months away, I guess, uh, before this is going to happen. So we're going to have to stomach a lot. Canada is certainly being hurt. I don't want to suggest we're the only ones being hurt by the, the tariff war. But this is just the way he rolls. This is the way he operates. I don't think he knows to do it any other way. And he's got the Republicans in Congress totally afraid of, of, of speaking up in any way against him. The few that do are people that have already announced that they're going to be retiring from office and aren't running again. 
Uh, but this is, it's going to get worse before it gets better, I'm afraid. I'm not sure it's going to get worse on this particular issue, I think, already because of the conflicts you mentioned at the outset, of the fact that so many people in his administration, they don't have an act together. They're, all, they're saying all sorts of things. I think he may try to find an off-ramp with regard to the incarceration of children. But on other issues, including the trade issue, uh, I think we're going to you know, have to put up with this for, for months to come. But the Sessions, uh, I guess, uh, attempt really to, to try to justify this, and even Trump's attempts on Twitter to justify this, that these people are criminals, you know, they're coming into the country illegally. Uh, just to put this in context, and they're saying, you know, if you commit a crime, you, you should go to jail. Uh, crossing the border illegally is a misdemeanor, even in United States law, usually punishable by a $50 fine. Uh, and uh, please explain to me how that warrants taking kids away from oh, these it, people. Uh, of course it doesn't. And really what it's really about is, is bargaining leverage. Um, and in fact, asking for um, asking if, if people are genuinely in danger, which many of these people, not so much from Mexico, actually. Many, most of the people that are being talked about now are coming from Central American countries like uh, Honduras and, uh, and El Salvador. Uh, that indeed, uh, this, th- th- it is implausible. He suggests that everything's the Democrats' fault because he can't ever take responsibility for anything that he does. He can't ever climb down. He can't ever apologize. And that's part of what puts him into a bind. My hunch is at some point he will justify this by claiming some kind of victory, that in fact he, he has saved the day. He's created a, a, an impossible situation, which he's withdrawn from. Look, even with regard to, to North Korea, um, you know, the, the, I, from my perspective, I, I think uh, uh, Kim basically picked his pocket. Kim didn't promise anything, in fact, less that he promised, uh, or that his, fa- his father had promised uh, Bill Clinton back in the 90s, claiming that at some point there would be denuclearization. Uh, there he all, he, for, as a result of that, he was able to get an end of the military exercises between the Russians, excuse me, between the Americans and the South Koreans. He got a, um, a promise that is, he got these, uh, these visuals, of the, he got the recognition, he got Trump saluting his, his generals. Um, Trump, and Trump is now claiming it is a great victory, and that may explain how Trump will deal with this particular issue. He will claim victory out of defeat because he always, when he makes a mistake, he claims it's a great victory. Well, and you have to read between the lines sometimes when uh, you, you've seen some of Trump's musings about this. Uh, when he talked about his quote-unquote victory against North Korea, I mean, I know we finished off one of those conversations with Kim by simply saying this would be a great place to build some of our hotels. you you got to wonder, is that a side deal that's coming out of this? Because it's all about Trump, isn't it? Well, that this is all dependent upon the fact that they really are going to denuclearize. I, I think that's very unlikely. Um, there, there's no... Oh, what's no, this, Barry, the seventh time that Kim's promised to do that? And his parent, yeah. I mean, this, this has been going on for decades, where there's promises of this and that for which the Americans give them certain benefits, and then, uh, then they aren't honored. That's the way it's been. I don't want to say it can't happen. Certainly, this is better than the rhetoric of a few months ago where he was talking about, my button's bigger than your button. But he's the one that created the crisis, and then when he walks away from it by, by providing concessions to the other side, he claims that's a great victory, and I guess he's expecting a Nobel Prize for this. I, I, I don't understand exactly how he thinks, but this is... This seems to be part of the routine, part of the theater that he introduces. He creates crises, and then he sometimes he backs away from them. With regard to the tariffs, that hasn't been resolved and may not be for months. But nonetheless, he creates this out of whole cloth and then, in fact, claims it's a great victory when he has to back down. But at what point, and maybe I'm just being hopeful here, uh, will the majority of Americans wake up to the fact that that in Trump's world, black is white and, and, and white is black, and you know, truth is fiction and, and facts are lies? Uh, I mean, he's even done it today to try to justify this immigration policy, talking about, look at Germany, they let all these people in and they have their highest crime rate. That's a lie. 
Uh, Germany's high current. It's the lowest that's been since 1992. But he, he just makes stuff up and people buy it. And 55 years before Canada existed, we were responsible for burning down the White House. Yeah, I mean, it's just one after another. Uh, part of the strategy is actually quite quite insidious. There, there's just such a torrent of lies that, you know, every day there's five new lies, or it's not necessarily that many, but there's always something new coming down, and we forget what the public can't concentrate on just one particular issue because there's so many of these things that are coming on down down the line. Look, with regard to a majority of America has never supported Trump. A majority of America voted against him um, in the last election because of the vagaries of the uh, electoral college system he was able to win. Um, and indeed, because of the fact that he's popular, not with a majority, but with a substantial number of Republicans, he's got the Republicans scared of him. A Republican congressman who actually was supportive of most of his policies, but critical of a few, this guy Mark Sanford in South Carolina, was defeated last week in a, uh, in a primary because Trump had tweeted against him. That's the fear that he's using against the, the Republicans, uh, the Republicans in Congress. The, the, the day of reckoning, I think, is coming uh, in November. I think it's November 6th this year, uh, when, in fact, the Republicans are likely to take a pasting in the House of Representatives. We'll see. I could be wrong. And it, that's still five months away. The Senate's a more awkward kind of situation because there are so few um, Republican seats that are up relative to Democratic seats this year. That's a more technical question that we'll perhaps talk about another day. But let, let's not say for a moment that a majority of Americans support him. They don't, and they never have. All right, but you take a guy like Mitch McConnell, who has actually been one of the enablers for Trump uh, in the Senate. He's the Senate majority leader, of course, for the Republicans. Uh, if, in fact, some of these targeted tariffs that uh, that not just Canada, but Germany and the U.K. and others will be imposing and have started to impose already in the United States, that starts affecting, the, for instance, the Tennessee economy. That's one of the things they've targeted, actually. Well, he, he's, he's from Kentucky. Now, Kentucky, uh, Kentucky I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One, Kentucky bourbon is yeah. one of the areas that's been targeted. Uh, soybeans from Iowa are, are another area. Yeah, uh, clearly Canada and China and Europe are, in fact, with their counter-tariffs, are going to, in fact, have an impact on many of those people. I guess he's hoping and assuming that the other countries will back down eventually. And that's why, in fact, uh, tr uh, why Trudeau really has no choice but to, in fact, fight back, not, not so much verbally, but to fight back at least with regard to the counter-tariffs. And they cannot allow himself to be bullied because they've already suggested that, indeed, uh, the auto industry, which is enormous by comparison with the steel and aluminum industries, uh, the auto industry would be next. That could happen anyway. He could just use that as a whim in the future. Uh, you, cannot back, you cannot back down to a bully. The bully will just continue on. But this is the way he's acted. This is the way whatever successes he's had, and he hasn't had a pure success in his business career either. He's had a number of bankruptcies. But that, indeed, this is the way he, he's just by bullying and BSing his way through and bluffing uh, and trying to intimidate people. Um, that's the way he has you know, been able to build the industry that he has in, in, in hotels. And he's just carrying it on in, into the future. Um, it, look, it isn't going to be pretty, and indeed Canadians are, are going to be hurt and are probably already being hurt, certainly in Hamilton, among other places, but also in Quebec. We're seeing a, um, a by-election today in, uh, in the Chicoutimi area, in the Saguenay, where, in fact, that's sort of the center of the, um, the aluminum industry in Quebec. Uh, that indeed uh, the, the likelihood is the liberals are going to do better as a result of that. They, they were, could have been in some jeopardy, are going to do better because Canadians are basically pulling together and recognizing that they cannot allow themselves to be divided on this. The Conservatives and uh, the Ford uh, pro provincially are all basically in line with, with, with Trudeau. Ironically, 
my hunch is, although it's hurting Canadians in the short run, it's probably helping Trudeau in the sense that he is standing up and that Canadians are being supportive of that. And that's really the only approach for him and, frankly, for most of these other countries. They cannot allow themselves to be divided. What Trump wants to do is to end multilateral organizations and multilateral agreements. He doesn't like NAFTA because he figures he can do better one-on-one with Canada and one-on-one with Mexico. And, and, and trying to, to, to break down, that's why he was opposed to the TPP with the Asian countries. He, he would prefer to deal with European countries also one-on-one, because that way American power is greater in, in a bargaining situation. But uh, there seems to be a clear distinction here, though, Barry, between domestic and foreign policy and the reaction to it. And, and just the generalization seems to be that Trump can pretty much get away with whatever he wants domestically because the Republicans just turn a blind eye to it. A good deal of them do anyway. But when he goes on to the foreign stage, the foreign arena, this pushback, uh, not just from Trudeau, but from Merkel, from Macron, from, uh, from the other G7 leaders, they're not going to tolerate the bully. And, they, and, and that seems to bother him. And that's where he lashes out. Well, they can't. He, he lashes out at everybody. He lashes out domestically too. And you're right. He's had more success domestically than in foreign terms. But the foreign the foreign leaders like Canada, but like France and like China and all these other countries. I'm certainly make have no brief for the Chinese. I think they've they've been very unfair in their own trade practices. We in Canada actually have a deficit to the Americans, which he hasn't. He's been reluctant to recognize. And that, in fact, it, Canada is going to be hurt by the tariffs, but so is America and so is everyone else. And it's only when, in fact, American, Americans come to push back themselves. Americans aren't, haven't had really the opportunity other than in a few special elections, as they call them, kind of like our by-elections. The Republicans are getting defeated time after time when there's these various state uh, by-election type situations. The Republicans are doing terribly. I expect that that's going to be continued on in November. And at that time at least the House of Representatives will probably be in Democratic hands. I mean, that's going to then lead to impeachment procedures. I I, I frankly don't think that that's going to lead to the removal of Trump. But look, there are different days ahead, but we're probably not going to see an opportunity for Americans in significant numbers to react viscerally to Trump until November. And in the meantime, he's going to keep acting as he's always acted, trying to bluff and bluster his way and push people around, because that's the only way he knows to operate, I'm afraid to say. And the Republicans in Congress have not been prepared to do anything about it. Well, and, and by the way, you made a very important point here that I think a lot of people have overlooked. Uh, if, in fact, there is ever an impeachment hearing in this situation, uh, impeachment does not guarantee removal from office. Impeachment uh, is indictment. Look, that, that, yeah. Clinton got impeached. But it, it wasn't removed from office because the Democrats supported him. My hunch is that with Republican voters so supportive of, of Trump, that the, Repu- it would, it, the Democrats in the Senate would be not enough, even if every one of them voted against Trump. You would still need about a third of the Republicans. I don't see that happening unless there's much more damning evidence than I imagined. I think there's going to be damning evidence of, of Trump. But the whole notion of what is truth is being redefined. People are sort of in denial of facts because Trump argues that it's all false news. Um, it's, it's not a pretty situation, and we may, in fact, have Trump to deal with, not just for the next five months, but indeed for the next two and a half years. But I think he will have less leverage once the Democrats in the House are able to at least control that body. I think the Senate is a stretch just because of the numbers that are involved there. There are so few Republican seats, vulnerable seats that are up, and I think it unlikely the Democrats are going to win all the elections they would have to in order for that to occur. But, um, look, Trump isn't going away. I'm hoping that Trump will be weakened. I'm hoping at some point that if the Republicans have a truly bad night in November when the, um, the uh, midterm elections come up, that indeed some of them will, in fact, start standing up to Trump and realizing that their own, because all they're concerned about are their political skins, uh, that right now they're more concerned about the Republican 
primary electorate, the base, than they are about the general electorate. But if they have sufficient losses in November, maybe not enough to take over the Senate, but nonetheless have sufficient primary losses, a number of Republicans will, will basically sober up and understand that they cannot continue to go along with this. Many of them will, will continue, the people in safe districts. But if there is a significant number of Republicans that start, a minority to be sure, start moving away from Trump, I think his power and his ability to intimidate others domestically in the U.S., but also internationally, like the Canadians. Hopefully that will be lessened. But I, I guess the biggest victim here, and the one that really bothers me the most, is the truth. And, and I, I'm not trying to overstate this by any stretch of the imagination, because, Barry, like we know that anybody who's running for political office or trying to maintain their political office, uh, they usually just give us their version of the truth. They'll, they'll play hard and fast with the facts. We get that. And I think we, we almost come to accept that, that that's going to happen. But this is not just playing with the facts. This is... This this is outright lying uh, about things Absolutely. and simply making things up. Time after time after time. Look, there was one big lie that was associated with, um, with, with Obama, which was the fact that if you like your health care, you can keep it. I can't think of anything, anything other distortion on the part of Obama that the Republicans tried to pin on him. That was one over eight years. Trump, it, the average, it's close to six a day. Uh, the, the Washington Post and, and various other media outlets basically itemize and count the number of times he's, he's lying about this or that. It's, it's something like six times a day does he lie, and we've just, just in the last few minutes in our discussion, we've itemized a number of those things, including the fact that the Democrats are responsible for the law. Nonsense. The fact is the Democrats weren't, uh, weren't separating uh, children from their parents back at the time when these laws were created. Barry, always a pleasure to get your insight into this. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you. Bye for now. Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Premier designate Doug Ford, of course, will be sworn in at the end of the month. We know that. Uh, at a meeting last week with some of the media around Queen's Park, he talked about what he considered some of his priorities, first things he wants to do uh, once he officially becomes the premier of this province in just a few days. Uh, one of those, of course, is to reduce the price of gasoline by reducing the provincial portion that we pay at the pump, uh, which is not to say, by the way, that uh, the gas companies can't just jack the price up uh, to where and, and then take the 10 cents off, and who knows what's going to happen. But anyway, we'll deal with that as it happens. One of the others, though, is uh, uh, an assertion by, again, uh, Mr. Ford, that he is going to scrap the carbon tax here in Ontario. Uh, but there was some concern about... If, in fact, that happens. By the way, we have a cap-and-trade system here in Ontario, which is somewhat different, but I'm not so sure that Mr. Ford understands that. But there may well be some legal ramifications because this program has been in place for some time now. And uh, not to suggest necessarily the companies have bought into it, but they are being compliant with it. Now that the rules have changed, what does that do to the landscape? And then, of course, there's the greater question about one of uh, Mr. Ford's other goals, as he stated, was to join Saskatchewan in a fight with the federal government about their carbon tax that uh, should be instituted uh, so any other province not come into compliance with any other environmental plan. And uh, so, in other words, if Ontario scraps what they have right now, and that's what Mr. Ford seems to think he's going to do, and certainly can do because he will be the premier, the federal government is, is suggesting that they will simply impose their carbon tax program on provinces like Ontario that don't have their own program. And that, in itself, can have some ramifications. Joining us to talk about this is Steve Applin, publisher of uh, Emission Track, uh, which monitors CO2 carbon dioxide emissions from energy use. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Great to be with you, Bill. I, I, you know, every time we start talking about carbon taxes versus uh, cap and trade and, and the implications and the price of carbon, I, I know an awful lot of people's eyes just kind of glaze over and they just don't get it. 
But but we need to have this discussion at some level because I mean there's a lot of money at stake here. First of all, yes, three point uh, or two point seven billion from proceeds of uh, carbon auctions under our cap and trade system. So yeah, there's a big pot of money sitting around, and uh, I guess the instant question is. Uh, if the government's getting us out of the system, what happens to that money? Well, there's a guy that says he wants to find $6 billion in savings. <laughs> yeah, well, he said, yes, that's, uh, that's, I, I just don't know what it's... It, by law, you've got to do something, quote, environmental uh, with this money. You have to do something to get... Uh, and specifically, you have to get carbon emissions down uh, by using this money. So there are a number of options that the former government, the, the government that brought it in, uh, had, uh, you know, which are kind of the same old, same old, you know, uh, making homes more energy efficient and, and uh, things in that nature, of that nature, uh, the premier is going to have to decide, A, what to do with that close to $3 billion, whether to return it to uh, the, uh, to, to the, whoever bought the permit auction, uh, the permits at auction, or to deploy it in the way that it's legally mandated. That will be very interesting if he chooses the latter, because like, I, it's, it must be tempting for a government that's facing shortfalls all over the place uh, to uh, forego close to $3 billion. And, and that's an interesting distinction that you've made here, because when we talked about the potential for legal action because of this decision, it's, it's actually on two different levels. There may, fact, in fact, be some people that just philosophically think this is a good program and they bought into it and, and, and changed company policy to be compliant. They might just say, hey, a second, we've incurred costs here. We want our money back. And there are those that have already bought these, uh, these, uh, these emissions controls, like you say, to close to $3 billion right now, that may say they want their money back. So it sort of sounds like uh, either way the government's going to have to start writing some checks here. Uh, I, yeah, so, so writing some checks uh, where it where it where it controls where that money goes, i.e., if they choose the latter option, which is to keep the the 2.7 billion, do not return it to those who purchased the permits, but use it in some sort of provincial program to basically buy down carbon. Uh, that'll be really interesting. I mean, or or do they just return it to who the the companies that bought the permits? That's uh. The that alternative, I mean, that, that would be very easy, just just refund the money. But that's $3 billion, Bill. It's a lot of money for a government that <laughs> needs money. Well, and that's that's one of the things that, again, Mr. Ford has not been very clear on as to exactly how they're going to approach this. And, and I know that the, the, some of the people in defense of Mr. Ford are going to say, well, come on, he's not even the premier yet. But they've had lots of time to think about this. They knew what the program was. They knew what the financial situation yep. was. So, you know, we, we need to get some clarity on this. Uh, and then there's the concept, of, of course, about people that may not even directly be involved in this ca- this kind of program, Steve, that are simply going to say, wait a second, this is good for the environment. I don't want my government doing this. And they may take legal action. I mean, I've heard from some environmental groups that say, you know what, we're kind of kicking this idea around of maybe us taking the provincial government to court if they kill this program. Yeah. Well, that part of it, I, I wouldn't be too, too worried. Uh, ENGOs uh, do this all the time, yeah. environmental NGOs, the, the green groups, Greenpeace, environmental defense, et cetera, et cetera. They, they, they do this kind of stuff all the time. I don't see, uh, first of all, I, I think that it's fair to say that, that, the, that Ontario, if you want to put it as an entity and, and, and the public in Ontario, uh, just repudiated repudiated the government that brought in cap and trade, and pretty resoundingly, they don't even have official party status. So uh, the premier elect is on pretty safe political ground by saying the most of the people in Ontario don't want this. And second, 
uh, what do the, the, the ENGOs for them to be successful in this, in this uh, legal action that you've just, uh, that you've just uh, put out there, uh, they would need to show that this is, that that is, that we're talking about actual carbon and emission reductions. And as you and I discussed on Friday, that's, this is not anything that's proven. There's, there's no system in the world that has pr- been proven to reduce carbon. So these, these are all highly debatable points. It's, it's, it's a, it's, boils down to a matter of partisan policy. And if one government likes it and the other one and another, or if one party likes it and another party doesn't, and the party that doesn't like it wins an election, well, it's their prerogative. Now, neither one of us are lawyers, but uh, but we can speculate on this. Uh, because if the, the provincial government's justification, and I think you're, you're absolutely right, they've got a lot of uh, credibility to this, simply saying, look, we're the new government, and we said we were going to do this, and, and we won, so we're going to do this. Uh, do, do they not extend that same uh, that same loyalty to the federal government and simply say, well, they're the government of the day. They said they were going to put a carbon tax in. They got elected. Yeah. So who are we to, to, to try to sue them? That's that's uh, that's uh, that's, uh, that's the sixty four dollar question. Uh, you've got the that's the other side of this of, of this question. The, you've got the federal government that has said, and the federal government's got this equal claim to credibility when it comes to the electorate as the provincial. The federal government won a majority, uh, so the federal government's got a opposite view to to what the premier elect has and this is going to be very interesting because the federal government when it comes down to jurisdiction the federal government does have the power to uh to to tax at the federal level and if the federal government brings in a tax that affects ontario you know you've got the the premier elect saying he's going to oppose that and that will be a very very interesting fight but we're back to the idea of what do you do with the proceeds and the premier elect has not said that he is opposed to taking environmental measures. In fact, he said that he's, in fact, said quite the opposite. He hasn't been specific, as, as you as you noted. He's, that's absolutely correct. But there are all there's all sorts of wiggle room opportunity to for the for the new Ontario government to institute some sort of uh, fiscal measure, uh, some you know against against carbon emissions. So there, it'll be really interesting to see how this all shakes out. But I, I would like to point out that the federal government has been as unable as other proponents of cap-and-trade to show where the carbon emissions are occurring. They've just got it as an article of faith that if you put a tax on carbon, you're going to see carbon emission reductions. That's not necessarily true. And, you know, it really depends on uh, the breakdown of energy use. If, if, you, if you do a lot of driving... Well, your options are really, really narrow. And if you live out of the out of out of town, if you live out in the country, well, your options are narrow when it comes to how you heat your home. You know, you've got fossil fuel or wood, or basically, or that's it. Or you could use Ontario electricity, but as we talked uh, talked about on Friday, the the prices skyrocket. Yeah, exactly. Now you know one of their arguments though is is, is going to be look at maybe maybe there's no hard and fast evidence about this yet. But if you allow us to do this for a couple of years, we're going to see you know some significant improvement in this. Is, is can they take that one to the bank? Is there any credibility there? I, I don't think so because the 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 federal minister, uh, you know, God bless her, she's my MP, uh, has 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 really struggled to articulate. She's been as as non-specific as the premier elect of Ontario has been. Uh, she's been uh, non-specific about where where these carbon reductions are going to occur. You know, BC had a carbon tax. I was out in BC at the, the day that that carbon tax became effective. That was in 2008. So they've they've got 10 years of of history, and it's very very dodgy. Uh, the claims that they have reduced CO2 from this, 
you know, nobody's nobody's curtailed driving out in BC. The only thing that curtails driving is 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 a massive increase in gasoline prices, and we haven't seen a big enough increase in gasoline prices to produce something like this. So uh, there's uh, the 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 federal minister is going to have to double down on 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 her case for the carbon tax and the specific reductions that we can expect. On the other hand, you've got technological approaches such as we took in Ontario, replacing coal with nuclear, which did produce uh, um, carbon emissions on a measurable, demonstrable, and massive scale to the tune of tens of millions of tons. Uh, the federal minister, uh, uh, I would advise, should have a look at technological solutions to this, and, and perhaps uh, there's, there, there's an opportunity for carbon tax revenue there. What, what about, I'm going to go back to a meeting that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had when he was here in Ontario a couple of years ago, uh, Steve, uh, when he was still the governor of California, uh-huh. uh, and he was talking about the auto industry and about emissions, et cetera, and of course California's tried to implement some of these policies uh, yeah. that you and I have been talking about here, but, but Schwarzenegger's mantra that day seemed to be, look at, industry can find the solutions if you just, you know, push the, their buttons and say, you guys have got to do this, and he says, look at the stuff they've done already. And they didn't have to have be beaten over the head with a stick to do that. And and the auto industry, I think, is a great example. I'm not suggesting we're exactly where we need to be right now, but you look at some of the advances in automotive technology with hybrid engine engines, yeah. uh, even without even going to electric, and and even those that are still under you know combustion engines, the the emission controls that they have in place right now and the emission reductions are really remarkable considering where we were at one time. Uh, that that may be true. I I think that the that the the real um, um, opportunity in the auto uh, in the automotive industry to reduce CO two is electric. The, the, the you can you can get that auto cycle. You know the gasoline piston engine uh, uh, as about as you know they're about as efficient as they're going to get. You can shave fractions of a percent off the off the uh, off off the efficiency, or, or you can improve the efficiency by fractions of of a percent. But you've got thermodynamic limits that are just that are impossible to get around. Uh, to reduce that, uh, the government uh, uh, Schwarzenegger was right. It's if you if you uh, uh, incentivize the auto industry to to bring out zero emission vehicles, which which they're now doing. Uh, then that's where you're going to see this. But you, but you, you have to look at the other side of the equation. If 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 you're going to go electric, then your grid has got to be clean. You can't do this out in, in a place like Alberta. Charge your electric car with Alberta electricity, which comes with you know 900 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour, and expect you're going to see big uh, emission reductions. As a matter of fact, if you have an appreciable increase in the amount of electric cars that there are in the fleet. And, and that means an increase in electrical demand. And you don't meet that new electrical demand with zero carbon, not just low carbon, but zero carbon capacity. You're going to see increases, uh, an overall increase from power generation, which defeats the purpose of electric cars. There's there's a there's a real uh, um, um, elephant in the room regarding that across this entire country, in, including in Ontario. If we if we go electric with cars, and you and I were talking about this on Friday. Uh, you need new electric electric generating demand, and it has to be zero carbon. That's that's the, that's the that's the cold hard fact of this. And and that makes all kinds of sense. I guess one of the things that, that troubled me and still continues to trouble me, uh, when the wind government made this real push towards electric cars, is uh, the technology's not there yet. It's it's not where it should be. I mean, we just had another story over the weekend about somebody's Tesla that burst into flames on the yeah. highway. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a little hesitant to buy a car like that at this stage. You know, I'd like to know that I'm going to be relatively safe, and I don't think we're there yet. 
Yeah, I, well, you're 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 right in that respect. There's there's uh, there's going to be a public perception that happens when a car spontaneously bursts into flames. It's not like uh, uh, internal combustion engine cars don't burst into flames when they you know they have typically have an accident before that happens. Uh, there's there's a whole bunch of of uh, industrial problems that have to be solved. Uh, there's you know if you want an electric car and you and you you you're, you join a waiting list. If you want a if you want a, a, a traditional internal combustion engine car, you walk over to a lot and you buy it and you drive off the lot that day. You don't have that with electric cars, and there's a worldwide bottleneck, uh, re- you know, revolving around batteries of electric cars. Mm-hmm. So there's you're you're absolutely right. There's there's a ton of things that have to that have to get solved for that to happen. And when when if and when these become a, an appreciable portion of our automotive fleet. Uh, well, the, there's going to be a worldwide battery market that rivals the size of the worldwide petroleum market, and this is going to be disruptive, to say the least. Peak electricity, that's going to be the next debate, I guess. Oh, my God, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Steve, hey, listen, this has been a pleasure as always. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. You Steve uh, Applin, of course, publisher of Emission Track. Check that out online. You can Google that, uh, monitoring CO2 carbon dioxide emissions for energy use. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.